This is episode 53 of the podcast called Blood and Rain. I'm your host, Arthur Dane. Paradox. Language had become feeble to describe his experience. As Saint Dionysius would begin to express what he had experienced, the truth of it would shift back out of view, words themselves buckling under the ineffable. God wasn't only beyond comprehension, but entirely incommunicable. But then, he was also found inscribed in every place, the heavens declaring the day pouring forth speech in the mouths of birds and beasts and infants, namelessness and multiplicity of names, unknowableness and perfect intelligibility, universal affirmation and negation in a state above all affirmation and negation, the god of paradoxes. He overflowed creation in two simultaneous streams without independence, one so high above as to be hidden completely from mankind that no eye had seen and no ear had heard. The other thrumming below in every movement of soul and soil, mingling with the world and emanations, himself moving beyond himself, light from light. The world was a system of references. Every object, every person, every location had its particularities that could be described and understood by its attributes, by its similarities or dissimilarities to other points of reference. But God was beyond the system entirely. Creation could reveal mere echoes of his attributes, but it could not reveal him as he was. He did not fit into the system of references called existence, nor was he non-existent, being the source of existence. Being and non-being, darkness by excess of light, the ineffable revealed in word. The infinite assertion of the phrase, I am that I am, was again expressed by Dionysius in terms of infinite negation. He is not. This expanse of paradoxes caused Dionysius to struggle against language itself to express a god beyond utterance, a god most clearly defined by indefinition. It was only by paradox that paradox could be conceived in the mind, and only by faith that it could be received in the heart. It is this hope of movement through paradox and toward the experience of God that has given Christianity its basis for mysticism and transformation. The hope of a God transcendent moving toward mankind in love forever. And that was my favorite piece from today's creator for this episode of Theophany and Orthodox Christmas. It goes by the moniker Prismatic Orthodox, one who has cultivated um, quite a unique aesthetic, one that is bringing orthodoxy to Instagram without sacrificing the true essence, the visceral, unspeakable nature of orthodoxy. Um, the creator that I very much enjoy due to my growing faith, and he's a creator I'm very excited to have on this podcast today. Thank you so much for being here, brother. Thank you so much for having me. Um, again, it, it, it is really an honor, uh, and like you mentioned, the, the day that we're doing this on, um, the Ophany we're recording today and tomorrow's uh, Christmas on the old calendar, it's, it's, there's a lot of significance um, in these days, and you know, for those for those who don't know, um, theophany is uh, Christ's baptism. So it's the you know, in, in essence, the, the first clear revelation 
of a um, Trinitarian God. Um, so it's 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 a, it's a good day. It's a good day to do this on. So yeah, thank you so much for having me. Absolutely, the the, the pleasure is all mine, and it's, it's gonna be nice to talk about uh, theophany. It's gonna be nice to talk about um, John the Baptist and the significance he had, um, as well as the as well as the the, the spirit of the Christmas on the lunar calendar. Um, although we can get into some of the, the recent controversies that could come that have come up about Christmas as a holiday itself. Mm-hmm. Um, I have a lot of questions for you. Um, I remember first seeing your page. Uh, I love the aesthetic of it, and I love the content, especially the piece that you just read. Because you know, especially as a writer, um, there are certain things that take quite a bit of time to sort of capture, and we're not necessarily trying to capture the descriptors in the the most precise way really what we're trying to capture is the visceral nature um, the metaphysical nature we're getting from certain experiences um, and conveying that whether it be in the form of poetry or the form of prose um, in as few or as many words as possible and for me to describe um, the faith for us to describe god in words something that's beyond words it's um it's it's a tall order, so I love I love the nature of that piece. By the way, well, thank you so much. Yeah, I mean, um, part of part of the challenge too uh, that that comes along with a with a page like that or, or a piece like that is that you know kind of um, I am I'm, I'm explaining what Saint Dionysius uh, Dionysius the Areopagite is experiencing while also in a sense experiencing that same thing. Um, because uh, because the the depth and and the immensity of trying to capture uh, God in any kind of written form um, is is a challenge, right? <laughs> and it, it's it's kind of accepting that um, again, accepting this the, the paradox um, that that God is always going to be beyond even these descriptions that we give Him, um, you know. It, it, and again, uh, yeah. It, it, it's a, it's a challenge, but it's but it has, it's honestly uh, it, it's been a joy to to uh, to try to put words to some of these things. Yeah, we, we sort of in pure humility write these things down to convey it to others who may have questions. I mean, I often think of how I'm going to speak to my future children about God, and you know, this is I say a pretty good place to start. But then I also have to eventually sort of tell them like, but this isn't really something that I can I can fully. Uh, describe or capture or quantify because it's literally impossible for me to comprehend and it's going to be impossible for you to fully comprehend so sort of conveying that balance is going to be very key for raising children um, in orthodoxy but or in Christianity in general Um, yeah I I have so many questions for you Um, but on this theophany uh, I would love to start um, to the extent that you're willing to share uh, your testimony in Christianity and in Orthodoxy. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, so I was uh, I was raised in um, an evangelical church, and um, you know, raised reading the Bible, um, believing just kind of the standard, um, you know, not Orthodox in the terms of Orthodoxy, but just Orthodox Christianity as far as. Um, you know, the uh, Nicene Creed. Um, and, uh, yeah, in high school, I, uh, and I was just kind of, you know, I was serious about my faith uh, growing up, um, but at the same time, only as serious as I think a, um, 
a child and, and young man can be. Um, and growing up, uh, you know, after um, high school, I got really into like the Reformed circle. Um, I was uh, Presbyterian essentially for a couple of years. Um, <clears throat> and I had a actually had a really good friend of mine who uh, became Orthodox and just kind of started asking a couple questions, not geared toward orthodoxy, but just asking a question that he had struggled with of, um, you know, in regards to Protestantism and Reformed theology. And um, it kind of started to slowly unravel some of these preconceptions that I had. And um, ultimately, you know, I think a lot of people who read my page might think that uh, my conversion to orthodoxy was just like one, you know, theological revelation after the other. Uh, that wasn't the case. It, it was really, I had a question um, asked of Protestantism that I wasn't able to answer. And um, I attended my friend's baptism um, at, at this Orthodox church. And, you know, there was just something different about the church. And, and so the, the draw for me in Orthodoxy was really one um, to, uh, of experience, rather, um, and you know, it was it was this um, this coming coming to this place uh, that I didn't exactly understand. Um, it was it was there was a power there um, that I that I couldn't quite put my finger on, but I knew that I knew that uh, there was something there that I was missing. Um, and so, you know, from there, it was it, the, the theological stuff came, um, but but it was really the experience of church and prayer. And liturgy um, that that kind of revealed to me um, that the Orthodox Church uh, was was the place the place to go, the place where God was. Um, and then, kind of, um, I don't know if do you want me. That was kind of how I came into Orthodoxy, and I ended up being um, baptized in uh, 2019. Um, do you also want me to this this page kind of came about in a slightly different way. Um, I don't know if you want to hear that story as well, um, because no, cer certainly I would, I would love to, I would love to hear the origin story of your page as well. Yeah, yeah. So um, in twenty, you know, in, in uh, twenty twenty, um, and this is kind of something that built over a long time. But um, I, it, you know, as you kind of start to read more about Orthodox theology, there is this. Um, you know, what I later learned was we could call mysticism. Um, and there's kind of these two sides of it. And it was actually, those two sides of it was kind of explained in that um, first piece I, I read at the beginning of the show, which is there's a sense in which God reveals himself to us through the world. Um, and then there's a sense in which he is, you know, unknowable, right? And so um, for me, there, there was a, in 2020, uh, I was reading two books, um, kind of side by side. One was um, Saint Maximus uh, the Confessor, his um, on the uh, what is it on the uh, cosmic mystery of Christ. Um, the second was a book called Through New Eyes, which basically deals with biblical um, symbolism. And so um, I'm reading these two books, and um, Maximus talks about the the logos and the the logi and how you know all of creation is has this reason this this uh, logos 
in it, like hidden somewhere in it. And um, and I'm reading this book on on uh, you know biblical symbols, and I, I'm I'm looking around at the world suddenly, and and you know we have this idea. It's really a postmodern idea that the poetry, the symbols that we see in the world are are creations of our own mind. Um, we think that you know we write a poem about a tree and like you know oh I'm so great because I was able to come up with this the symbol of what the tree could be. Um, mm. But uh, in in again this was kind of in the the middle of um, 2020 something just clicked in my mind um, where I realized wait a minute no the the tree has its own symbol the 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 symbol is not something I give to it the the tree itself draws me towards something else um, and the reason I um, an example I give a lot of times is um, uh, the 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 Bible, or rather the Bible, essentially um, opens these symbols up to us. So it, it reveals these, um, what the Logos is, what the Word is um, in creation. So I, uh, a lot of times we'll use the example of um, what we read in Genesis. So in Genesis, the, the second day of creation, um, God talks about separating the waters from the waters. And like, we read that today, and we're like, this makes no sense. Like, waters from waters, it means nothing. Um, but when you think of how the ocean and the sky look when you stand out and you look at the ocean, the sky above is this solid blue, um, you know, this solid blue expanse. And the sea below is another solid blue expanse. And there are creatures along both of those surfaces. There's birds flying in the sky, there's fishes swimming below. And so we see that in scripture, they don't think that the sky is literally water, but they think that the sky looks like water. And so they say that God separates the waters from the waters. And that language of separating waters from waters is, a, is also a uh, strong, uh, impactful Christian symbol. So like, um, if we take that symbol of waters from waters, and we think, well, what did Moses do when he crossed the Red Sea? He separated waters from waters, and he passed through. Um, and again, what do we do in baptism? We, when we're baptized, or when, for example, on Theophany, when Christ is baptized, he separates waters from waters, but you know, through himself um, or by himself rather. So, the symbol of baptism is set in creation before the foundation, and this is where, um, in when you read the Gospels. Um, talks about Jesus teaching them things that were hidden before the foundation of the earth. And I always wondered, what would that be? Um, and it and it is these things where he's able to look at the world, and Christ is able to say, um, this is what the world means. This is what the cosmos mean. Um, and so, in kind of, again, this the, the beginning of this page started with this impression that um, the aesthetic of creation had a greater significance than just the way that it, you know, may look or may feel. In other words, there's a way to write a poem that is true, and there's a way to write a poem that is false, because the world has intrinsic reason or truth in it. So, um, so that that to me, kind of set me off on this on this journey, um, and of kind of discovering 
all the you know what what are the possibilities of that and so um, a lot of what my my page uh, is is dedicated to is kind of exploring those different themes and the you know theological and philosophical um, ways to kind of uh, explore that and describe that. That's wonderfully described. There's so many things that I want to unpack there about creation, about sort of interpretation, because really what we're doing, we're, you know, so some people have this sort of like maybe thoughts of sentient beings, and I, I think that's a bit of a stretch. Um, you know, I think that would get some people who are very much wrapped up in postmodernism very excited. Um, but really what's hits the nail on the head for me was your, your description of the tree saying I'm not this person who was able to give this of the tree. I was something who was a someone who was able to look at the tree and experience the tree and be able to attempt to capture that, the capture of the truth of it. I love what you actually said about this a correct way and, a, and an incorrect way to write a poem because a lot of people are going to see poetry as this very personal thing and it is much of the time. Um, but there can be poetry rooted in lies, or there can be poetry rooted in smoke screens that most people are not going to understand that are even lies. Mm -hmm. And there's going to be writing poetry that is actually connecting with, a tr with an inherent truth and capturing that. And, and placing that on a piece of parchment for people to, to understand and to be, able to, to be able to sort of feel that visceral nature. Uh, I have an aesthetics page that I occasionally post on it's not called blood and rain visuals it's not called blood and rain aesthetics it's called blood and rain visceral because it's actually not about the aesthetics themselves like you're saying it's about the visceral nature that you're getting aesthetics it doesn't stop with the sight um we're talking about aspects of being and this is something that i think you know you and i have a very similar testimony of how we came to, to orthodox christianity um, there were questions I had in the evangelical church that were not being answered by evangelical Christianity. Um, and, uh, I, I, I spoke with Daniel before the call about this, but listeners, uh, I was in an evangelical, um, worship music session, um, about six years ago in the Sierra Nevada mountains of California, standing next to my girlfriend at the time, who was very into, um, you know, modern worship music, you know, your Hillsong, your Bethel, and I had my eyes closed, my hands raised for about an hour, and I, after that hour, I lowered my hands and opened my eyes and told myself, I, and thought to myself, rather, I don't feel anything. And I had this flash of uh, me staring at stained glass, and I sort of ignored it for a year because my girlfriend and friends were in this church. And I, um, when I started to think, especially... Um, because of, uh, honestly, the music of Arvo Part, uh, who came to Orthodoxy, the amazing composer um, from Estonia. I started to think about Orthodoxy, and I said, well, why, why not? Um, I was sort of raised CEO Catholic um, up until I went to Catholic high school and then left. Um, and I thought to myself, well, hang on, like, how, have I, how have I not even thought of sort of the original Christianity before the Great Schism? And... I prayed to to find a church locally, and the closest one was a Greek Orthodox church, and 
I, I felt a firm prayer, felt a firm response from God saying, no, I need to be Russian. And I, I knew nothing, like absolutely nothing about that. About, like, I don't know, the Russian Orthodox Church. I didn't know what that meant. Um, and I found one. And I, I came I came there and, um, like you, sort of realized that just being in the church, just stepping into the physical building and the essence that that captures that, you, you know, most Orthodox churches um, house that essence and, and really house the Holy Spirit. Um, I knew that there was there was more to um, that there was more to find there. Um, that visceral nature is something I think a lot of people miss in life, and I think it's something a lot of people miss um, in faith. Where you're speaking on poetry. Um, poetry, the you know, surrealist Greek poetry of Odysseus Elidus is going to be very different from the transcendental poetry of Henry David Thoreau, but the fact of the matter is they're both correct because they're both actually trying to capture something that they're witnessing viscerally. Um, for the listeners, uh, the divine liturgy that we practice and that, that, that we attend and we, we partake in in orthodoxy uh, actually predates the compilation of the Bible. It was written by St. Mark uh, for most churches. Um, and when you stand in it, when you're there, um, it's, it's a truly surreal experience for the first time. Um, I remember when I first came to Orthodoxy, um, the priest, they had a class, and he said, I'm at your service. I will answer all of your questions. You are not forced to convert. Um, you can attend as many services as you'd like. Um, if you want to become baptized, I'll make you a catechumen. For the listeners, it's basically um, preparing oneself for baptism. Um, and I kept attending this class, and you got to a point where he said, you know, Arthur, be, be, I'd be doing you a disservice to say, at least go to one of the services, uh, if I didn't say that. And I went to a vigil, uh, and the vigil is Saturday night before Sunday morning. Um, it's to prepare the soul for baptism. And I remember leaving, feeling like I just got out of a hard sparring session in Muay Thai and was out of shape, but it wasn't my body that was out of shape, it was my spirit that was out of shape. Um, I would love to hear about your first experience attending an Orthodox, uh, Orthodox service. Yeah, yeah, uh, absolutely. Um, so, like I mentioned, uh, the my first experience was actually on um, Holy Saturday when my uh, my my a couple of my good friends got got baptized, and um, this was a small uh, Antiochian church. Um, and again, this was you know this was pre pre COVID pre pre everything, right? So um, we all we were all packed in this very small room. Um, and, you know, on, on Holy Saturday, uh, there, there are just fresh flowers everywhere uh, because we're, you know, we're, we're remembering the, the day that Christ um, was in the tomb. And so um, earlier in the week, there would have been essentially prepared uh, this, you know, a type of symbolic funeral service for Christ. Looking forward um, to his resurrection all the while. And so um, on Holy Saturday, there's there's kind of this, um, the best way to explain it, there's a phrase in uh, orthodoxy called bright sorrow. And essentially it's this, it's, it's this beginnings of uh, 
of sorrow, but also of hope. It's, it's this ability to, to look forward, um, and, it, and it anticipates resurrection. Um, it's really, truly the fulfillment of uh, blessed are those who mourn, because you're recognizing that the, the mourning um, will ultimately be turned to joy. And so I remember just standing in this um, in this church for the uh, Holy Saturday service, um, again, not knowing anything about it. <laughs> and and one thing I will stress, um, by the way, to um, to my or, or, you know to to the, the people listening, um, I would just say, you know, like you said, just like your priest said, it's a disservice to say, you know, go read this, go read that, or, or think of these questions and not go to an actual service um, because honestly there, there's no part of um, of Christianity and there's no part of even what we're going to be talking about here that's disconnected from an actual life in the church um, and now and this is something where I think we um, we can be tempted to uh, like um, the idea of logos has gotten really popular recently really really popular and I think that you know it, it, it has its it's good and, and bad um, it's it's good because it's drawing people toward these ancient ideas right people are starting to read Plato again and Aristotle and Marcus Aurelius and you know they're 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 reading these these ancient writers who actually have something important to say um, that being said there's also we we could there's a way to do this just like there's a way to write true poetry and false poetry. Um, now th- there's a there's a way to approach these things in a completely fleshly uh, manner, and and that you know that that could be done. Let's say completely apart from the, the church, um, and and it could actually it's funny because it could it can be done and it can be done well, but it but it can't be done in its, in its fullness and it and it can oftentimes lead us into error, um, not only in how we're trying to interpret these symbols, how we're trying to find the Logos, but honestly who we think the Logos is, or rather what we think the Logos is, because you know the, there's this idea that there could be an impersonal Logos. Um, and we could talk about why I don't think that's you know um, quite, a, quite a possibility, but just to kind of um, go back to what you um, originally said. So anyway, uh, with that first Holy Saturday service that I attended, I just remember leaving, and, and um, my my wife and I didn't really talk about it. Um, a couple months later, we were we were happened to be on a long drive, and uh, I was just like, "Hey, we never talked about it. What do you think about that Orthodox service that we attended?" And apparently, we had both for, for months been thinking about this service and thinking about how kind of remarkable it was and strange um and on this long drive we had discussed it probably for over an hour and we're by the time we were done with the drive we're like well i guess we're becoming um orthodox catechumen now <laughs> or at least inquirers so it was a really interesting um it was a really interesting turn of events and again it flowed from not not me picking up a book and, and realizing something but actually seeing the life of Christ in the church. Um, so yeah, I, and, and you, you kind of mentioned something that maybe we could talk about too, which is, you know, you walk into the church 
and um, there there is kind of this sense just from being in that room how it's kind of all laid out that um, like you said it's a visceral response right it's a um, it's an aesthetic that you're seeing but the aesthetic conveys something um, and I've you know um, there's a, there I've heard people say like oh if you just like orthodoxy for the aesthetic like you know <laughs> you're gonna you're you're wrong and I, I would say um, if you if you solely like it for the aesthetic like if you're just trying to copy that and trying to take that piece without you know without trying to to see Christ in those things then yeah that's wrong but at the same time what the church has done um, in a rather remarkable way is is created an aesthetic in which every portion of it becomes a mirror and in that mirror shows Christ in in every form in every reflection right it, it, it's not just you're walking into a beautiful room it's that you're walking into a room that conveys something true that is beautiful um, and uh, this is kind of um, what uh, St. Dionysius the Areopagite writes in uh, The Divine Names, he talks about how all goodness and beauty comes from God. He is the good and the beauty. And so we can, we can call him beautiful. And all things that are good and beautiful participate in God, in Christ, in a particular way. And that's what we get when we walk into the church, right? It's not just, it's not just, um, this is a pretty place. This is a, this is a good looking place. <laughs> it's that, it's that it shows us something. And, and there's actually something more, um, to aesthetics than, uh, than just, you know, like, again, like I said, like, oh, it looks good. Um, to kind of give you an example, um, and we've been talking about poetry, so let's relate it to poetry. Um, St. Simeon, the new theologian, has has actually written quite a bit of poetry. Um, one of one of my favorite lines from him says, in ref, in referring to God, it says, "How are you at once the source of fire, how also the fountain of dew?" And so you have these two contrasting things that explain God, right? Fire, because God is, you know, he he is light. He is, you you cannot bear fire, right? You cannot you cannot touch fire you cannot grasp fire um but it also has cleansing properties it has you know it gives light it it it's beautiful to look at all these things but then uh, he's also the source of dew which is cooling to us which is a balm which is it gives us life and health um we rely upon it right we we uh we, we need it to live and so there there are these contrasting symbols in which we're saying we're not saying god is like fire we're actually saying fire is like god in a particular way not in fullness of course but in but in in um symbol right um so there is something to aesthetics you know there's something a little more um uh, profound about the way that creation is presented um and this could can also be understand uh, be understood when we say that Christ is the Logos, we could say there are three primary revelations um, toward us. One would be creation, which is through the Word of God, um, through the Logos, right? The second, we, uh, we could say it is the, the Holy Scriptures. That's another revelation um, of the same sort that kind of reveals these mysteries to us. 
And, and third, and most profound, is Christ himself, the Logos made incarnate. And so we have these three forms of revelation, creation, holy scriptures, Christ, and they're overlapping, they're not distinct, because, because um, you know, it's, it's through Christ that all these things are, are, are made. He is the expression of God, and so anything that is an expression of God comes from Christ. Um, so yeah, I, I think that, you know, we, we there's some, there's something, um, there's something, and I don't want to overplay the word mystical, but in a sense, there's this, there's this, um, way in which the world communicates to us through an aesthetic presentation. Um, it's, it's not something, we've made it something that is, um, empty, but it's not, but it's not. I think those, those, those att- the reason why it's empty is because people have attempted to box it into the realm of logic. A lot of people see logic as sort of the, the, the highest the highest being, and it's it's funny. Then they get into faith, and a lot of people, a lot of very intelligent people, come to faith, and then they start to see maybe it goes sort of one of two ways. It's like, well, my logic ends, faith begins, right? Or even beyond that, they, or they don't even realize that they're doing this. They're, they're actually trying to fully describe something, you know, going to the very beginning of this podcast, that can't be described by logic. Um, we call, we, we have the term the great mysteries. And also, I want to go back, um, I want to go back to something you said about, um, bright sorrow I remember coming to orthodoxy and actually this is before I even arrived at the church that I attended I was just at the was just looking at their website honestly and I got hit with exactly what you're saying and I was actually on break um, for a bouncing shift while I was bouncing at a bar and I was reading this on a computer at, at this, this bar that I worked at and I was overwhelmed with this grounding, this, this, this grounding sorrow, but that actually created this foundation for elevation and peace and joy. And I don't, I don't want to say enlightenment because that word's a bit overused, but yeah, enlightenment. And it was unlike anything I had ever felt. No form of Christianity I had practiced before had ever given me this this visceral reaction, this feeling, this these thoughts that were overwhelming my mind um, for the better and changing my being for the better. Um, it's it's a phenomenal way to describe what you sort of go through, and I, I did preface also um, before I go on for the listeners. Um, this is this podcast is by no means made to evangelize. Um, it's actually very uncharacteristic um, for Orthodox Christians to evangelize. Um, something that priests said when I first came to Orthodoxy, you know, you know, you, you might, but it's incredibly rare to see an Orthodox Christian in the street corner with a Bible in hand, um, screaming at the top of his lungs for people to repent and that they're going to hell. It's just, it's just not done. Um, the approach has always been, this is what we believe. Um, we're at your service with all the questions that you have. Um, 
and in your own time. And really, but really, what it means in, in, in God's timing. Um, and I've had a lot of questions um, on, you know, in, in DMs uh, I've gotten on Instagram um, about orthodoxy and my faith. Um, so this is, here it is. <laughs> um, I couldn't think of a, of a better guest. Um, when it comes to when it comes to aesthetics and when it comes to divine liturgy and when it comes to um, the walk of faith day by day, by day and sort of, sort of getting into mysticism, um, there is this spiritual mystic realm and it's something that I have struggled with other forms of Christianity is this sort of pure Bible scholar mentality where they're, they have their feet so on the ground, or at least they think they have on the ground. Um, but really what they're doing is they're encapsulating themselves in the text and only the text. Um, and it's, it's obviously text that is inspired in the Bible, but being a student of the Bible is different from actually living the Bible day by day. And in order to actually walk in faith, you actually need to walk sort of into the unknown. And there, there are different variations of Orthodox morning prayers. Um, and one of them, I believe in the Antiochian, um, let us not forget that all are sent by you. Um, that is a fascinating uh, thing to say in the morning. You have to actually walk this walk of faith, and that requires being sort of attuned. And a lot of people would consider that sort of strange to say as a Christian. Um, a lot of people would call it New Age, but there is this spiritual mystic realm, and there are a lot of you know entities that are malicious and not of God that are around that will seek to derail you or will just throw you into a void, to be perfectly honest. Um, that mystic realm exists. It can either be a void, or it can either be taken over, or it can be centered around uh, our God. And that's something that it's taken me quite a while to um, wrap my head around. Um, is this is this something that, in terms of, we're talking about the Christian mystic traditions, is this something that you had thought about prior to coming to Orthodoxy? Or um, is this something that really started with um, that initial first Holy Saturday attendance? Yeah, um, yeah, I would say it, it is something, um, I would even say probably after that, that first Holy Saturday attendance, um, kind of as I started becoming more acquainted with, um, with the faith. So, so to kind of piggyback on what you said there, you mentioned something along the lines of how there are a lot of, you know, other denominations or traditions that that don't really address this um, spiritual realm um, and you know like you said a lot of people even a lot of um, Christians might be be uh, kind of turned off from the the things that we're saying because it can sound kind of new age ish but when the part that that I got um, the part that kind of spurred me to thinking some of these things is um, I was kind of tired of, of making excuses for particular uh, Bible verses. So like we read, um, for example, that, that like I mentioned uh, earlier, this, the, the 
day pours forth speech, and the night reveals knowledge, right? So there are these psalms that we read. Or we can read in, um, in uh, Romans, where Paul writes that all of creation um, reveals the, the uh, glory of God, even his divine Godhead. That's what Paul writes. So there was, a, there was a sense in which I was saying, I started asking the question, not, not outside, not with this bringing in this other tradition, but from the scriptures themselves, saying there, there's something more here. Um, and I think, you know, I think part of it is just the age that we live in. I, I don't mean to make it sound like all other Christian traditions have, have failed in, in this regard, because I don't think that's true. Um, I think that we, uh, this, this current age that we're in, we, we really live in a postmodern uh, world where our intuition is so influenced by that, that we start to hear something that kind of sounds a little, you know, oh, this is, we hear the word mystical and immediately we're like, nope, that's not good. That's bad. <laughs> um, but the sense is, the, the reality is that we, be, we do believe in, all Christians believe in God as spirit. And that has to actually mean something, right? Like, that has to mean, we also believe in, um, call them angels or demons, or call them divine beings, or call them, um, like in scripture, call them uh, other gods, not on the same level as the creator god, but, you know, gods as in divine beings. We believe in this, right? And, and if <laughs> it, you know, it could, again, like you said, to someone just tuning in, it can sound really strange, but there's a way in which the postmodern idea of the world has actually failed, because there are so many people, and, and you, uh, we mentioned offline, you were talking about, you know, there's this rise of paganism happening right now, too. And I think mm. part of that is in part to people looking at the world and realizing, wait a minute, there's something else going on here that I've experienced, that I've seen, that I've read, that I've heard, that makes me question whether or not this is all just materiality, right? Um, if, if, if metaphysics doesn't exist, then, um, you know, then, then we can just go with Nietzsche and Darwin um, and <laughs> Hegel, and we can say, okay, well, then I'm just going live to for, live for today, and, you know, maybe Nietzsche had a more noble way of doing this, um, but a lot of people just basically say, you know, then drink and be merry, right? That's it. Um, but if if we can't deny the metaphysical um, uh, realm any longer, we have to sort our beliefs somewhere. And the funny thing is that you know um, everyone is is new age people as well, um, and and people of all different spiritual traditions have tossed that materialism and the the idea that metaphysics doesn't exist away because they've they've experienced something different and so um so that's kind of where you know for me approaching these things and t starting to kind of under or explore what we mean by a mystical tradition in christianity was something that apparently i had been questioning for a long time because mainly because of the scriptures, because it's it's kind of undeniable um, in the scriptures. Uh, and, and in these things that I've said and read many times, never knowing the meaning or having to rather explain away the meaning. Um, but it's kind of, you mentioned something there too about how, you know, a lot of people might hear 
some of these things that we're talking about and Christians even and immediately think like, oh, this is, you know, this is not good, the things that is being discussed here. Um, but part of that, I would say, is due to the possibility of it being twisted in one way or another. Um, and so to kind of uh, draw a, an example um, from from scripture, the, the first task that Adam is given in the Garden of Eden is to name the animals. Uh, now, this is something that a lot of times we can kind of skim over because we're just like, we know, yeah, he's created, he's going to fall, whatever. But, <laughs> but you know, like we, we can just kind of read through it real quick. Um, but the first task he's given is actually give the animals names. And what um, St. Seraphim of Sarov says is that when Adam is naming the animals, you know, he's not just picking random names, but he's he's giving the animal a name that is... Uh, that reveals kind of something about what, who and what this animal is. Um, and so he essentially says that he's naming these things in wisdom. So he's saying something true about the creation. So he's taking the, the, what he sees in the creation and he's putting words to it and he's putting meaning to it. And because this is before the fall, he's doing it perfectly. Now, um, you have Satan come in. And Satan also gives a name to uh, something in the garden. But what he names as, you know, again, it's the knowledge of the tree of good and evil, but what he describes it as is inherently false. Mm-hmm. And so there is a sense in which we can, there, it, even in the, that first chapter in Genesis, and, and this is something that maybe we can talk about too, is that what the scriptures really are um, is that they, they explain to us how the world works. And so um, we, in this first uh, instance, we have someone, Adam, saying something true about the creation, giving it a name that is true. We have Satan giving it a name that is false. And um, when, if you can think of it almost as pulling two different threads, if you follow the thread that is true, you lead to the ultimate reality, which is God. But if you follow something that's false, if you follow that thread that's false, um, the question is, what's on the other side of that, right? And what Adam and Eve end up finding out is that they eat this fruit, and it actually separates them from God, and there is no longer life there. So, um, you know, what the to kind of put this in terms that I've, I've heard a really helpful um, uh, explanation of this, which is essentially God is this personal reality, if we consider him as the personal reality, all of creation is a dialogue between God and man. And so what mankind is actually called to do is to look at the creation, to look at the world, to understand it, to give it a name like Adam did, or whatever that means, right? It could be poetry, it could be art, it could be um, writing. It's saying something true about the world because that truth is where the logos, right, the the reason of the world is. And and by following that truth, that is where uh, the personal reality as God exists, right? And so what the creation actually is, it's not a it, it, it's not just you know God revealing himself to us, but it's actually a dialogue because we are the only conscious beings in the world who can understand 
the symbols and the truth and the intrinsic meaning in the creation. Um, and so that's kind of where the, the aesthetics of, of things um, kind of transcends itself because you know we, we can write poems and we can write art and music. And this is why, again, I think the Orthodox tradition is so rich in these things. Part of it is because they've, they've, a lot of these saints and Christians have realized that the creation itself is incomplete unless it is um, transformed and transfigured by the work of man. That, that's kind of our job, right? Our job is to transform the creation into its perfect version. And whether that's writing, whether that's something um, physical, right? Like, let's say we, we build something, we take raw material, and we can craft it into something that is useful and purposeful and intentional. That's the, that's the, the task of, of mankind. Um, and we can see that again, going back to the garden, right? With Adam and, and Satan. The, the dialogue is something that like again, there's, there's, there's a lot to unpack there. First of all, I want to touch upon sort of postmodernism. So many people, and this 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 is a habit of humanity across the board, right? They go wrong in one extreme. They're like, okay, well, the counterbalance to that is the complete other extreme. And oftentimes that opposite extreme doesn't really have the actual truth that they're looking for. Um, you know... <laughs> I, I see this, I mean, I'm not, I'm not even going to begin to really, like, touch upon politics, but it's a very, very brief example. It's like, oh, then that, we got fed up with the Republican, the Republican president, so now we want a Democrat president. Now we got fed up with the Democrat, now it's a Republican. It's like, uh-huh, okay. Uh, that, that's, that's sort of a, a commentary on human nature. We throw the baby out with the bathwater more often than not. Um, and I think with, you know, with postmodernism it's like they're sort of fed up with uh with, with hearing some of the new age stuff so they want their feet so firmly on the ground like, no, no 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 and that's just not the actual reality you're not going to have your feet completely on the ground something that was very very interesting to me when i came to drama school in london is in the movement classes they were trying to get us to cultivate a balance of opposites in the body that a lot of us didn't understand at first because, and this was something across the board in drama school, to like, be present, but be relaxed. It's like, you know, so, so, so many of us were just sort of in this in-between nothing state when it came to our presence in terms of um, focus and intentionality and the same thing with our bodies. Um, but really we needed this very well cultivated counterbalance um, and movement it was we needed to have our feet more rooted to the ground we actually had to have our body sort of extended up and more closer to the sky um, so we're sort of stretching out in both directions and we we're actually becoming sort of more human um, rather than this sort of compressed being that was nowhere to be found this this nothingness and it's a similar thing um, that we're seeing with you know sort of the reaction to a lot of the new age or vice versa um you know you see some people who 
in Christianity who run off to sort of mystical new, not not really saying mystical because we just talked about how mystical is, is not an inherently evil word. Um, but they go to this new age bit and then they come back to Christianity when it's actually Christianity is going to have you grounded beyond belief, but it's also going to have your, your, your mind be elevated. It's, it's, it's that same dynamic. Um, as that physical dynamic I was, was talking about with drama school, um, and preparing the body for the stage. Um, when it comes to what you're saying about the sort of the false thread that you can unravel, and there's the true thread that you can unravel, um, I, I can't even begin to tell you how true that is. Um, for the listeners, my testimony. I'll say it briefly. Um, it, it sort of reflects the same timeline that I discussed on the podcast of Letters on the Runs. Um, I, I came to Orthodoxy um, in 2017. I had my first Pascha in 2018. And right before, uh, for those of you not familiar, Pascha, you arrive at 11 p.m. and they hand you a candle and there's no, there's no lights on. And at 11.45, they have you exit the church and walk around it. With your candle, wait outside for them to open the gates at midnight and y'all Christ is risen. And my first Pascha, I saw this flash right before they yelled Christ is risen of my then ex-fiance, and now once again ex-fiance, and I sort of staring at each other. And I found it very strange, and the other Christ is risen, and I ignored it. Two days later, I received a text from her saying, I broke up with so-and-so and I wanted you to know. And all of a sudden, I found myself going down this false thread. And I went to get her back. And I abandoned my faith without realizing it. I, I, actually, I was so, so convinced, so, so convinced I was doing the right thing. Um, even though maybe deep down there was that unnerving question mark. Um, and I was following this thread towards death, and it brought me to New York City for us to potentially get settled there, and I got injured. Injured spiritually, to be honest, and literally injured physically. And there's, there's a lot of reasons that I'm sort of suspecting why this all happened. You know, some of my own accord, I went down the... the the, the wrong thread, but even now, fully coming back to, to my faith and giving my whole heart over to God. Because when I first came to my orthodoxy, I realized that I did not give everything to God. There were certain things I was hiding from them. But giving my whole heart to God now, upon returning in true prodigal son fashion, to be honest, um, I, I can see now the way my going down the wrong path is actually being used for God's greater good and greater grand plan in the context of my own life, in the context of the way I serve others. Um, but it's fascinating looking back now, seeing what it was like going down the wrong path because it actually increases increasingly marches you down towards falsehood and death. And it's, it's, it has you fade and it has you wither. And for someone who has cultivated a very intense level of willpower, um, 
when my willpower was guided towards my disciplines in Christ, um, I saw a lot of healing, and I'm seeing a lot of healing now once again. And I saw a lot of cultivating further humility. I was actually actively trying to grow more humble. Um, and I was more rooted, and I was better in service to others. And I couldn't even see how many of these things that I, that I cultivated through my faith in God were completely disappearing for myself. And now we're sort of returning now. It's a lot clearer than people realize. That's that's absolutely right, um, and I, and I, you know, you you said a lot of things there that kind of I think resonate with um, a lot of our experiences of, of those who have kind of joined themselves um, to Christ um, and to the church. Because what, what we're talking about here, um, you know, on that point specifically, uh, you, you mentioned how your spiritual life directly impacted your physical life. And your, your you know, your, your, what we would just call, what we would just call life, right? Uh, because what, you know, this, this is something that, that, um, that we could we could kind of get into is that there's a relationship between those two. Um, so the your spiritual life or your your um, your life that is lived, let's say, morally, is it, it does impact uh, your physical health, and there are obvious ways that we can test this, right? So we could say, you know, if you if you or a drunkard. If you if you drink every night, um, your your spiritual your physical health and your spiritual health will will take a hit, right? Um, mm-hmm. These aren't distinct. These aren't distinct pieces. Uh, they're they're less distinct actually, and they work both ways. So I'm gonna explain kind of how I would see them working both ways. So first of all, um, there's this emphasis right now, for example, on you know being being strong, being um, being a man. Being a, uh, you know, uh, there's almost this leaning towards saying like maybe barbarianism is good, maybe um, <laughs> just this wild power is good. Um, the funny thing though is that we can actually we can test this uh, by we can we can look at is 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 unkempt strength is uncontrolled strength ever good. You know, there, there's a sense in which we can have immense power that is uh, that is controlled, and, and that is true power, right? That's true strength. But if you just mm-hmm. have this physical strength, and, and there's no moral guideline to it, there's no virtue, right? That will that will cause suffering. Like think of um, there's a difference between a man who's strong, who can protect his family. He is able to keep his strength concealed obviously toward his family he has complete self-control toward his family now if there's a a a man who's physically strong um but he uses that strength on his family if he hurts his wife or his children that's a horrible thing to do and that strength has actually been turned against him Mm -hmm. um and so you know and and um we can kind of we talked about this earlier and i think this is probably a good time to bring it up uh 
I, I think that this is something we overlook a lot, where Christ is the perfect embodiment of the perfect man. And when we say perfect man, we, you know, I don't just mean a human being. I also mean man as in a, you know, as in masculinity, because he, um, I'll, I'll give you, I'll give you kind of three, I've been reading through the gospels lately. I'll give you kind of three quick examples from the passion of his life that shows um, how he continually responds and how he is himself the, the perfect man. So let's take three uh, quick stories. So Christ is um, in the Garden of Gethsemane. He is preparing himself in prayer to be crucified. He's about to be about to be arrested. And he, he, both he and his disciples go to the garden. And he says, you know, wait here and watch to his disciples. I'm going to go pray. And he says, essentially, he says to them, I'm agonizing. I'm overwhelmed by what is occurring. He, he is, he is the, all of the anxiety of having to suffer a very brutal and painful death that he knows is coming is right at the door. And Christ goes into the garden to pray, and he is dealing with this extremely difficult thing uh, in his spirit and in his body. It says that in, in one uh, gospel, it says that he's, um, he's sweating blood, right? He's, he's agonizing. And he goes out to, to talk to his disciples, and they're sleeping. So you have these two, two men, uh, or rather, you have the disciples, who are three men there in that case, and Christ. And Christ is dealing with the immense burden of knowing he's going to suffer death. And all the disciples are dealing with having to keep awake and pray. But Christ bears that strength. Christ bears that burden, rather. And the disciples can't even bear it. They fall asleep. And in one of the Gospels, he even says to Peter, Do you not have the strength to stay awake and pray for one hour? Another... Uh, um, you know, portion from the uh, the Passion, um, we could see uh, Christ when he is um, being condemned, or uh, yeah, being condemned rather by the high priests, and they they are giving false accusations against him, and and Christ does not answer. They're saying, you know, they're they're bringing up all these false things and they have false witnesses to to say all these horrible things about him, but he's silent and he bears it with dignity. Right, so he has this immense power, um, and he's being told all these horrible things, uh, but he doesn't say a word in reply. Again, that shows strength, right? Um, one of the disciples, when Christ is being arrested, takes out his sword, cuts off someone's ear, but Christ says, turns to the disciple, heals the man who's injured, and he says to his disciples, "If I wanted to, I could call down legions of angels." He has this unlimited power. He's he's the most powerful man in the world but he has utter control over that power he is he is he is humble he is meek and the the true strength of christ isn't just necessarily saying you know um it isn't just necessarily saying well oh, look how look how strong he is he is the man of virtue uh, he is the man of of um of goodness right and i think maybe the final uh, one other example too that always stands out to me is you have this contrast again between um jesus christ and pontius pilate um pontius pilate is the governor right he's he's gonna um determine what the uh what christ is going to suffer um or whether he's going to be released 
right? And so Pontius Pilate goes to the crowd and says, who would you like me to release, this Jesus, king of the Jews, or, uh, you know, Barabbas, right? And, uh, which is this criminal. And mm -hmm. so, and, and it's interesting because it says that Pontius Pilate knows that the high priest offered Christ up out of malice. So he knows that Christ is righteous, and he also knows that it's the high priest's, you know, jealousy of him that uh, why Christ is standing there before him. But we have uh, we have both of these two men, Jesus Christ and Pontius Pilate, being silent. But Jesus was being silent out of courage, and Pontius Pilate was being silent out of fear, because it says that Pontius Pilate feared that the crowd would, you know, essentially cause a riot. And so, you know, you, you see, this is what I, you know, is so interesting about reading the, the, the scriptures and, and even, um, you know, again, looking at this person of Christ is that he, he shows, he reveals himself to be this, this man of, you know, who, who can bear all things for the sake of love and goodness. He, he is, he's humble and he is, um, you know, has utter control over his body, over his flesh, to the point, obviously, to the point of death, right? To the point where he's even willing to, you know, willingly give himself um, to die, which is, I think, a thing that, that not many can do. You know, we can talk about it, but maybe not many can do it when it comes time, um, especially in a, in a death like that where it's... It's slow and it's agonizing, and there's time before that he gets to reflect upon it. He's not just going out to battle, right? He he knows long, long in advance of what's going to take place, and, and still he bears it with strength. Um, and so that I think that's something I've kind of been just thinking about lately. Is you know this this man Jesus Christ? He's not he's not just you know, the, the shepherd with the sheep on his back. I mean, he is that. But he's also, he's also this man who, who bore kind of this immense burden. And the contrast between himself and the other men around him in the scriptures is just, it shines so brightly because he is so different, you know? <laughs> he, he, he does, he is, uh, he reveals something different about what it means to, to be a man and, and what it means to actually be strong. Um, so yeah, that, that to me, that always, that always um, stands out. I mean, when we, when we think of what is Christ's strength, we think of him flipping tables in the temple, and that does show that he has this righteous anger and that he has this physical strength. We, we know he's, you know, he's not some, some wimpy guy, but, but at the same time, he, he demonstrates this in kind of a subversive way, in a way that we don't expect. And to me, that, that kind of reveals, again, once again, this relationship between spirit, because he showed himself strong in spirit, and what we actually do physically. I've heard it described as the, he's the Lamb of God and he's the Lion of Judah. He's both. He's this, he's this divine example. And you hit the nail on the head when it comes to strength itself. Like, I, I, I actually get kind of annoyed, to be honest. Like, when I see just like, this barbarian, like, it's like, all right, man. Like, um, sort of screaming up and down about their strength and so on and so forth. I'm like, yeah, I 
think that's all a bit unnecessary. Um, some people have seen my writing sometimes, my more, I, mean, I despise that word, motivational, right? Motivational writing. Some writing that is made to sort of rouse people to action. Um, none of those pieces was ever actually to reflect or really to reflect any kind of any kind of arrogance um, or just sort of flex. Um, there are certain convictions that I have about certain dynamics of intensity, especially in you know martial arts background and struggle and things like that. That are like we discussed earlier. There's a correct way to do it: write a poem. Is it an incorrect way to write a poem? None of those posts that are maybe some people would find inflammatory, really, really intense, or fabricated. Like that, those are legitimate things that I'm going through, and legitimate things that I'm capturing over time. When it comes to strength, um, we see this time and time again across the board in every single sport ever. Um, how many times, like, oh my gosh, he's a freak athlete. Like, he's just, oh, he's unbelievable and all the hype's about this guy. And he loses to the person who does not have as many attributes as him. But he uses all of his attributes flawlessly. Um, I'm from the San Francisco Bay Area. I've mentioned this before. Um, Joe Montana was not the biggest quarterback. He was didn't have the craziest arm. He wasn't... He wasn't the fastest on his feet, but he he actually used everything he had as best as he possibly could, and he outdueled guys who were these phenoms with huge arms, Dan Marino, John Elway, through his decision making, through the use of all the things that he had. It really doesn't matter how much strength you have if you don't know how to use it. It really does not. Um, you could cultivate absurd amounts of strength. That's great. I'm not saying that I'm, I write programs of strength for people. Um, but if you can't apply it to aspects of life, and I'm not just talking about, you know, combat sports or field sports, if you can't, if you don't know actually how to measure that strength and you don't know how to apply it accordingly, um, it's, it's useless. It's actually useless. Um, for example, I'm the biggest guy on the fight. I'm the heaviest guy on, on my current fight team. And in sparring practice, I need to be extra careful with guys. Like, it would not serve them of me going sort of balls to the wall. There's a young 16-year-old, you know, shorter kid, you know, really, really talented. I do not spar that kid with the same intensity as I spar someone who's, you know, 6'4". Um, it just would not serve him. It would serve no one. It's like, all right, cool, you got wailed on. Now what? It's like, no, I'm going to keep putting on pressure that you can handle to develop you and to serve you as my teammate. Um, when it comes to, when it comes to, you, you mentioned the dynamic with a wife, right? The wife and kids. Having all of that strength to protect your family. It needs to be constantly cultivated, and I've seen that wither in men. But also, if you can't reel that in around your wife and kids, you're failing and you are weak. I can't express that enough. And I wrote on my story a little, I think, three or four days ago, that we often see, a lot of people see goodness as this sort of meek thing, but when we have this example of Christ 
who, like you said, was just supremely powerful, but just so immensely controlled in everything he did because he was per he was perfect, perfect in every single way. We start to see the amount of strength it actually takes to control the sort of raw strength, if you will, and. Imagine being the highest example. We have to keep one of my favorite parts of morning prayers. Teach me to walk uprightly in the way of Christ's commandments without embittering and embarrassing others. Allow me to be an example of Christ without it embittering you to sort of combat that or embarrassing you for your shortcomings. Let it be an inspiration to you. It's like, I'm going to grow closer to God, and I want you to grow closer to God as well. I'm not doing this to say I'm better than you. I'm actually not better than you in any way because I, we're, all, we're literally all equal in the eyes of God. Right. These, these yeah. balanced yeah. dynamics are so important to understand, and many people don't even scratch the surface. Yeah, yeah, and I, I, I think that there's also this... Um, you know, kind of, kind of, continuing to to maybe look a little longer just at the the life of Christ and kind of what he demonstrates. And, and again, I, I kind of reiterate what you said. This isn't some. Um, this isn't you know, this isn't like a just a, a, a preaching of the gospel. But this is kind of looking at this, you know, this this man, this historical figure, um, Christ Jesus. And, and, you know, talking about who he was um, and, and kind of what he's done and what he demonstrated uh, for us in, in his life. Um, you know, St. Dionysius kind of gives this uh, relationship. He says all things are related between the relationship of a, of a father and a son. Um, and the way that this would kind of work is um, he's, he's explaining this, this hierarchy, right, where father um, looks toward his son in love and raises him up out of, out of kindness. The son looks up to the father and aspires to be like him. And uh, when, when someone is with a peer, like let's say a son with a son, we look toward that person uh, for camaraderie and also for, you know, this, this kind of, uh, we, we endure things together, right? Um, now, all things can kind of be summed up in that way like even let's say um masculinity right like you mentioned how you know it's your the the morning prayers you know essentially i I pray not to cut people down right but rather to build them up and so there is this sense in which we have that opportunity where a father who who uh or you know a mentor or anyone who has this uh you know anyone who is looked up to um, you know, can demonstrate this kindness by, uh, you know, being kind and being loving and generous to people who are, you know, like below them in some way, not below them, you know, in any, in any, uh, ontological way or intrinsic way. But I mean, um, you know, let's say you, you're really great at something and someone else needs help. You, you can raise them up, encourage them, show them the ropes, um, in that sense, you take this role as a father, right, as a mentor. Um, and now, when we look at Christ, we see that he uh, was a son, right? He was the son um, of the father. 
And so one thing that's that's I, I think is just really important to, to kind of take away even from the life of Christ is that we always have to have that relationship, meaning we always have to have, uh, we can't be the the highest end, right? Like everyone in life has a physical father. Everyone in life has a biological father. And part of that is a symbol in itself because every father, every, yeah, every father has his own father, right? And we have, have God who kind of shines down upon us. And, and, you know, we go to God in prayer, we go to God, um, you know, with all these things. And, and he, you know, we can, in a sense, we look up to Christ because he's this revelation of, of God, but then we also relate to to God the Father in a particular way because, you know, we are now made, like what Paul says, we're made sons of God. Um, and so there's there's kind of this, um, what I kind of want to talk about, and I, actually I'm not sure, how much more time do you have here? Just to... I have 30 to 40 minutes left. Okay. That that's that should be good for me too. Yeah. Um, so so one thing we were talking before about how the there's a relationship between the spiritual and the physical, and we kind of in discussing the life of Christ, we were looking at you know Christ's spiritual life, a life lived in uh, lived in virtue and lived in the, this high moral place was actually a demonstration of strength. Now there's also a relation of the physical to the spiritual. And so um, one case of this, for example, would be something like icons or what we were talking about before, like maybe poetry or holy scriptures that take something in the world and um, and reveals something spiritual through it. Um, now there's also this sense of um, what I like to kind of imagine as uh, you mentioned you went to drama school and there was this, you know, you had to essentially prepare your body to, you're doing things as a demonstration, um, as a, as, you know, you're an actor and you're demonstrating a, uh, something of larger significance to a, um, to an audience, right? Uh, so there's a sense in which the physical things that we do actually have can reveal rather spiritual realities, and so um, for me, this is is kind of um, explained in a way. Uh, first of all, by Christ uh, do, uh, teaching parables. So Christ teaches parables, and I read in a history book somewhere that he was actually the first um, significant teacher in all history. To use parables in that way, where they're where they're revealing spiritual truths, almost in a in a kind of hidden way. He's not just drawing a direct analogy, or he's not just he's not just um, you know he's not always laying it out all the time. He's he's giving you a story, and in these stories is a kind of um, hint at the truth of how the world works. So, um, in other words, when when someone goes to Christ and says uh, um, something like, you know, um, you know how, how are you saved, right? Or how, how can you be saved? And he gives you the story of, the, uh, of these two men going into the synagogue. And one man is a Pharisee, and he says, Lord, I thank you that I'm not like this tax collector. You know, he's so sinful, and I'm, I'm so thankful that I'm not like this sinful man. And, you know, the, the, the tax collector is keeps his face lowered to the ground, and all he says is, 
you know, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. And Christ says, this man left justified, not the Pharisee, right? He gives you a story that shows you that the things that we do in our lives actually have a spiritual significance. He, he, in other words, there's a sense in which we ourselves, in our physical bodies, in what we do in the world, can become a parable that can, that can relay truth. The world works this way. Um, it, it's, it's, it's something that's so obvious. We tell stories all the time. We watch movies all the time. We see actors doing something. But when it connects to our own lives, um, we like to think that the things that we do are insignificant, right? We like to think that, um, that, or maybe we, unfortunately, we think the things we do are insignificant. We think that, you know, it's not going to matter if I, you know, watch TV for 12 hours today. It's my day off, right? Quite mm-hmm. frankly, though, um, there, there's this reality, you know, in, in in the world that is actualized, I like to call it, um, I don't know if this is coined anywhere else, but I, I kind of gave it the name an actualized symbol or an actualized parable. Because what we're doing is we go through the our lives day to day and we do the things that can essentially draw out spiritual truth um, through our actions. Uh, so the Old Testament, for example, is filled with all kinds of these um, these stories, right? So you think of Jonah. Jonah gets swallowed by the whale for three days, and then he goes to Nineveh, and he preaches to Nineveh, and they repent, and then he's upset about it, right? Mm-hmm. When Christ comes on the scene, he doesn't say, listen, I'm going to die. He, you know, he does basically say this, but he, but he, what he actually says is, "I'm the sign that's given to you is the sign of Jonah, So what he's saying is this thing that Jonah did in his life um, of being swallowed by the whale for three days, it was actually an image of of me, right? And to kind of um, go back to what we were talking about, about like bright sorrow, we talked about that. Um, We could even relate this same concept to even something like as simple as working out, right? So think about um, when you work out, you, in my mind, all things represent the death and resurrection of Christ. So anytime something is cut down, it comes back. So think of um, fall. All the the trees essentially appear dead, right? The leaves fall off. We're in winter right now where I am. I don't know what it's like where you are, but the trees are bare, right? (laughs) There's nothing. There's nothing. The trees are bare. Um, But in spring, they will grow again. The, The leaves will come back. There will be a, you know, fresh new beauty. It, in a sense, it's just resurrection of um, the of of you know plants and trees, right? When we do something like work out, we break our body down. In a sense, we 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 uh, you know, for lack of a better term, we mortify the body, right? We we in, se- in a sense intentionally damage not damage in an injury kind of way, but, you know, intentionally uh, impact the, the muscles, and then they come back stronger. They, In a sense, we could say they come back glorified, right? Because that's the image. The image is that everything that dies returns again uh, better, returns again stronger. Um, and, you know, this is kind of the way. There is that spiritual, physical relationship to where we are kind of living, walking parables 
that can that can constantly reflect either reflect the truth of God or reflect you know a lie and and to me you know that's one of the most impactful things about orthodoxy like we read the lives of the saints all the time and what we're actually saying in reading the lives of the saints is that they can teach us something not only about how to live but about the truth of the world you know does that kind of make sense does that kind of make sense sorry that was like kind of a long rant no that, that that actually <laughs> makes perfect sense because it's i i tell people this too the divine liturgy there, if you go to an, uh, a true Orthodox church, and this is actually, I think, why I was deterred from going to the Greek here in America, because the Greek Orthodox Church in America has been Americanized. Um, there's pews. There's supposed to be benches on the side for people who, you know, elderly and disabled, right? But it's an open floor for the rest, the people who can stand. And it's a physical form of, of worship. Like, you're actually getting the body and the mind and the spirit involved in unison with the Divine Liturgy. Um, and that doesn't just occur in the divine liturgy. Our day-to-day actions, our day-to-day choices can open up avenues either towards falsehood or towards God. Throwing our brains into this sort of nothingness state where we just sort of consume and watch TV or we just sit at a bar stool and, you know, if you're going to sit at a bar stool, at least read, at least write something, at least try to have a genuine conversation if you're just going to sit there. Uh, I don't really know what to tell you, to be honest. Um, if, 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 you're, if you're placing yourself in these decisions of nothingness, don't be surprised when you receive nothing. Right. It's, right. it's, and, it's a pretty simple concept, honestly. Well, and that's, and that's kind of why I think the way we kind of started this discussion was saying, you know, there's no part of part of what we're talking about here that, um, you know, on one hand, it's not just a, um, you know, it's not just a, a evangelical plea, right? But but on the other hand, what we're, what we're really talking about is there, there, there is a connection between one's spiritual health and one's... Uh, and oneself, right? The, the, there's no part of, of what we've been discussing that is, is disconnected from a life in Christ. And, and this is most, like you mentioned, um, I think plenty of times, this kind of like this the path of like the, um, the green martyr, right? The, the path of this, um, and there, there are various forms of this, and the, the best way uh, we look at the monks and we can see that they live this life of, um, asceticism. We, we see that they're constantly, slowly, through discipline and determination and love for God, they are taking their flesh and they're they're setting it aside. They're saying, you know, I my body craves food, but I don't need food. I'm going to fast. I need I need more of uh, a relationship with God, right? Um, the Desert Fathers. I've been reading the Desert Fathers lately, and there are there are so many um, kind of great stories in there. Uh, and and one, um, there was a there's a story where someone says, um, kind of just for bearing um, false accusations, someone says to a monk, you know, oh, we've heard that that you're uh, you know a whoremonger and a drunkard, uh, and he humbly says, you know, okay, yes, you know, this is true. Of course, you know, we know it's not true that the person reading the story knows that a monk is, is not doing those things. 
but he accepts the criticism. He says, yes, that's true, okay? And then he says, and we've also heard that you're a thief and a liar. And he says, okay, yes, that is true. And then they say, well, we've also heard that you're a heretic. And he says, that is not true. And, he, and essentially he says, you know, the first two things that, that you stated, they, they are for my benefit. They, they separate me from my pride. They make me humble. But the, the last of being a heretic, that separates me from God. And I don't want to be separated from God. And there's this kind of this picture of the, the, the you know, the monastic uh, call. Uh, and there's a sense in which all Christians are called to this. It's to be willing to separate ourselves from all things. Um, be willing, you know, uh, Christ even says that, you know, if we seek something in this world, if we seek the riches of the world, you know, we'll lose all of it and our souls. But he says, you know, you can separate yourself from the world, even to the point of, you know, pluck out your eye and cut off your hand if it causes you to sin, right? This kind of extreme emphasis on you you remove all things that separate you from God. And, you know, to me, that it, it's, it's, it is this call to kind of this, this radicalism, right, of saying you discipline yourself, you humble yourself, and you constantly come before the Lord. And like you've been saying, you know, like we try to do, go to liturgy as much as possible, pray as much as possible, um, you know, foster the virtues, embody the virtues in your life. Um, because all of those things, you, you kind of become in yourself a demonstration of, not, you know, I don't even want to just say a demonstration because you, in that sense, you can actually just be, be drawn nearer to God and you don't have to act something out as, as if it's distinct from your nature. You are, you know, we say you, you, you're given grace and that grace empowers you to, to live a righteous life. Um, and so, you know, it's, it, it, it's just interesting. We, we, ta- we have made all these things so small. Right, we we made uh, the parables something that oh these are these are little cute stories that Jesus tells right <laughs> we've made we've made the Old Testament kind of like strange and like let's get into all these like Levitical laws and whatnot but um, one of the best one of the best things um, it's actually uh, funny you and I were talking about your podcast with um, uh, Symposium although he's I think he's changed his name on Instagram now um, I can't do this. Okay, yes. Yeah. Um, so he posted something the other day, which is, you know, essentially, I would say, he said something along the lines of, don't go searching for wisdom um, unless you've read the Bible in earnest, unless you've, you know, read the scriptures sincerely. Um, and I think that's true. And not even from a sense of saying, you know, um, we're Christians here. So embrace the Nicene Creed, right? <laughs> but just the sense of you can test, you can test the things that are in Scripture. You can test the things that Christ says, and th- this is what's kind of phenomenal about it. Um, if you test these things, if you if if you say, you know, I want to follow, you know, I, I follow Christ, or I'm reading these things and looking at these stories. Is there truth there? Uh, it's difficult to read those things and come away with with no, right? And we see this, like I mentioned, the Logos idea is getting popular. You see people, uh, you know, like 
let's even say like um, Jordan Peterson, for example, who's taking all these Bible stories and finding the truth that's in them, but then still maybe not embracing it. And it's it's kind of an interesting. Um, it's an interesting uh, relationship with these things because, you know, whether it, it to me it just kind of says whether you're a, a you know a Christian, a firm believer in these things or, or not, there is truth there. There is something worth you know. They, people are interested in these things again because we're looking at the world and saying, well, everything around me is a lie. Where's the truth, right? Um, and some people are saying, like, maybe the truth is just in the stories, even if they never happened. Okay, you know, <laughs> but at the same time, there's kind of a there's kind of a problem there. There's kind of a um, dichotomy there because the simple fact is that a lot of what we call truth is part and parcel of the Christian faith, and and quite frankly, you know, philo- philosophy is getting popular again. Ancient philosophy. But that the the, the um, way that that has been tr- um, brought carried into the the vessel in which that has been brought into the modern world is in large part Christianity. You know what I mean? It's like there is something kind of interesting that these philosophies kind of folded into Christianity. Like you can find a bit of Stoicism in Christianity and a, a bit of um, a bit of uh, Platonism. You know, and a, like aspects not the whole um but to me it's you know it it shows something it it tells us something we're in in an interesting time right now and and i don't think you know i I don't think uh i'm not necessarily we have the white pill black pill i'm not really either way um quite frankly i i don't know how it's gonna go but i know that there are a lot of people now kind of asking a question um what is truth and ironically enough, that's the same question that Pilate asks to Christ. He, he says, yeah. yeah, that's right. And, and it, it's a good question. Of course, yeah. 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 It, it's, tr- tr- their truth isn't relative, like people are saying. Mm-hmm. Tru- your, your personal experience of truth are certain reflections that are revealed to you at that given circumstance. You know, sort of live your truth, live your truth, live your truth. But it's not actually yours. It's actually God's truth upon your life, right? You know, we discussed at the beginning, you know, actually before you and I started recording that I'm exiting bartending finally. Um, And that when I first came to it, there were actually all these lessons that I learned about my Christian faith and serving others because I started as a barback. So I had to assist the bartenders and really take care of them. And then I got good at, you know, taking care of people when I became a bartender. But now, um, God has shifted me elsewhere, right? There's still an overarching truth. There were truths within the dynamics of the bar. There were truths that I was taking care of people. There's also truths that it was still the context of poison. You are coming to a place to purchase poison, and I am the... I am dealing you poison like I, I i i was able and i was in a stage of life where god was having me focus on sort of everything else and now god is having me focus just on that like and it's undeniable it's in my prayers it's in my thoughts at all times and just sort of forcing me out we don't actually have dominion over truth god has dominion over truth 
And he's going to enlighten the eyes of our understanding of our day-to-day lives with that truth. Um, and that's what I think we're, a lot of people like, so the Jordan Petersons uh, of, of, the, of the world and people who are sort of taking these philosophical concepts, like they're, they're, they're really living Ecclesiastes. Um, it, it's, sure. it's, it all just yeah. sort of goes to dust. And you see it in the rise. It's like, oh, we went yeah. through this sort of amazing sort of philosophical, like, but to what end? They're, they're literally, there, there is no, there's nothing they're actually marching towards. They're meditating on things. And they're sort of applying it, you know, the 12 rules for life, taking some of these stories, like, well, here's a, here's a, you know, 12 good ways to live your life. But then they go elsewhere, they find other philosophies, and they don't actually create any kind of framework. They don't actually have a way to fully live life that's continuous, that's constantly inspired, that's um, on a path. It's just, it starts and then it disappears. It rises from dust and it turns back into dust. And that's not a way to live. And a lot of, a lot of men have been deceived into thinking that's like just the affliction of manhood. And, you know, what we need to do is just sort of keep going. And that's actually not true at all. Yeah. And there, and there, you said something, um, you said something there that, uh, really resonates with me, which is, um, there, you said something along the lines of a continual path, right? The, the kind of the, the, I mentioned these three revelations of God in creation, in the Holy Scriptures, and most emphatically in Christ. Um, There is a um, dynamic nature to it. There's a dynamism there that is constantly fresh and constantly new and constantly, um, I don't want to say developing in the sense that it's changing but it just it goes deeper and deeper and deeper and, and echoes it, you know it, the, it's almost this this idea of um saint maximus has a great uh, quote which is um, something along the lines of the ultimate mystery of christ is to uh, fulfill his embodiment in the world and so we can see this as christ becomes incarnate and in, in, you know it's his physical fleshly body and then he come and comes and establishes the church and that's his we call the church the body of christ right and this body the body of christ is actually supposed to go and continually reflect christ right continually mirror and and imitate and participate in uh in the life of christ and so you know, we're we're taking we're talking about symbols, and there's there is this kind of um, the best way to explain it is again kind of this this freshness to this perspective of the world where there's something new, right? And you know, again, I mentioned like the separation of the waters and the waters, and we talked about trees, but you know, we could we could talk about all kinds of things, which is the, the transformation of a garden into a city. We can talk about the seasons. We can talk about the cosmos. We can talk we we could talk about these things in the way in which they reflect the truths that are, you know, revealed through Christ. Um, and again, how appropriate on theophany that we're talking about all this stuff, because that is this immense revelation of, of who God is. But then at the same time, too, um, I think that we, we can, we can accept just like what you said, we can accept the lesser of that, which is, you know, okay, uh, let's let's dull it all down let's make it let's make it less right like you mentioned something the other day i think it was on one of your podcasts where there's this you know 
um, desire, if someone just has a desire to pack up and go into the woods forever, it's like, you know, yeah, I mean, we have this sense in which getting in nature and seeing the world that was, you know, the, the, the creation untouched by man, there's a, there's a part in which, you know, we can connect with God because there there's something about these images. But at the same time, we're meant to transform everything. There, there's we we are fountains of creativity, and whether that's through writing, whether that's through, um, you know, I think of even uh, some like bodybuilders who can shape their body in a, in a form that's quite remarkable. Um, you know, there, there, we can, we can approach all of these things in a way in which it's shallow and it's meaningless, and it's like, oh, I want to get away from the city because it's a city. You know, again, that's not to say that it's great to be in the heart of a city, but my point is that there's a possibility. There's a there is a possibility that that man is meant to create uh, in in good, right? And 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 that's I think you know at the heart of what you do um, with this podcast, with your with your Instagram page, I can see that. Like, and a lot of these other writers on Instagram too, where you know we're all striving to kind of put words to. Uh, capture these experiences or these ideas and you know we're, we're trying to say something new that i like the way actually uh, letters to ruin or thomas put it on your uh podcast he said essentially i'm trying to share something i've discovered i'm, I'm not coming up with a new idea um and my page is the same way like I'm, I'm none of these things are unique to me i i add a lot of quotes from saints and different sources that i've just kind of picked these things up from but at the same point too there's there's a new way to present these things there is this this freshness and this path and um it, it's it's funny because you know uh like you said if there if there is no formation to that if there is no uh way forward then we because we crave the dynamic nature of the world we can't stick to it if there's if there's in order to be satisfied we need something that is constantly dynamic with us um and i think one of kind of going back to just talking about the uh the, the scriptures and how they've influenced me i think one of the biggest mistakes that that we can make in approaching the scriptures is trying to read them in such a way to understand every single particular verse it's very challenging and but frankly, it, I don't think it's the way that we're meant to um, always, not to say unique Bible studies are, are bad, but just, you know, like you go into the Orthodox Church and they're constantly reading large swaths of scriptures. I think, I think that's the way it's meant to be received because we start piecing things together in our minds. We start drawing contrasts, like even the stories I was telling before about you know, look at the contrast between Christ, Christ and Pilate, and Christ and the disciples. You know, these are things that we can learn from Scripture, and they were they demonstrate themselves to us, and and we can take new things away each time. And a verse, you know, something that we read a year ago, might, you know, shine differently now, just because of what we know and and what we've experienced. And it, it is really, you know, people have said it's a. It, you know, these, this living, the church is this living thing. Um, I've experienced that. I'm sure you have too, right? <laughs> you go to church and 
there's a life there. It's hard to explain. Um, oh, no. So yeah, I think. No, sorry to cut you off. There's certain yeah, no. that life, like I feel it in, uh, in the cathedral in San Francisco. It's like it's it's undeniable. Yeah, right, right, and, and you know, it, it it's funny, and this goes back to I think there are pro- there, you know there might be some people who listen this listen to this and are just like ah you know it's just two Christian guys just talking about all this stuff. I I honestly think though that I honestly think though that a lot of the things that we've talked about here uh, might be ringing true for some people and, and maybe give them kind of a new way to kind of look at the world. And, um, and you know, maybe even a new, I think we've gotten so used to this shallow Christianity that doesn't, that doesn't touch reality in any, in, in all the ways in which we've experienced it. Um, I think that that's a, a misconception. I, I think that it's like you maybe said an Americanized, uh, version it makes it smaller and honestly if you really if someone really takes an honest look at not only the scriptures but at history at um, even this personality and this person of, of Christ you know the God made incarnate <laughs> it, it, it it's bound to be different it, you know if we if we kind of shed if we look at it with the with kind of a fresh start and just view these things or even like like you said you know we you participated in the church i'm sure even before you knew all the stuff we're talking about today um there's something to it it's hard to put your finger on it you know there's something to it so um yeah i I mean i think that's kind of uh the main thing that that my pay that my account's geared toward and and uh you know it's that it's this way to look at the world that's a little different than we've been taught. And I, I, what I would hope is entirely consistent with um, Orthodox Christianity. No, it, it certainly is. Um, I, I, I think sometimes people may get misconstrued that you sort of need to touch upon every aspect of Orthodoxy in something that you write to be in alignment with Orthodoxy. If you're not spreading heresy, if you're not spreading um, lies, if you're not displaying the truth in a way that places a blind spot or a distortion that yeah it is in alignment with orthodoxy and like i sort of regularly tell people to um you know someone it's almost you know almost a year ago now someone asked me how do i live a path of blood and rain i was so confused when he asked me that i was like what What are you talking about and they're like how do i live a path of blood and rain like how do i live the way you're living i was like whoa okay i don't even know how to answer that let me let me get back to you like um and I prayed and I meditated and I like put myself through really arduous training and I and I wrote sort of, um, I wrote sort of, I, honestly it was a continuation of, of the book of Five Rings uh, by Miyamoto Musashi, um, samurai text and it's actually I, I told people after though I said I'm not trying to be some religious leader like I'm not creating anything new like I'm I'm an Orthodox Christian so let's 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 set the record straight. I'm not trying to start some new kind of faith. I'm not trying to start some new sort of spiritual practice. Um, but I, one of the metaphors of my life is in combat. And in a lot of ways, combat is deception because you're sort of telling your, you're, you're not going to tell your opponent like, hey, I'm going to, I'm going to jab and then I'm going to, I'm going to head kick you. And uh, then I'm going to uppercut you. Okay? Like, that's obviously not how that goes. Um, 
and I think a lot of people would like to think like, oh, that it's you know it's it's purely of Satan because it's like eh, no, actually it's not. Um, what I noticed about Musashi and the, that samurai text, the Book of Five Ranks, was a lot of truths about combat. But if you look at Musashi as a person, he wasn't a hero at all. He was, you know, quite selfish, quite self-absorbed, right? He was seeking to fully understand combat itself. Um, and he sort of wrote this this text that a lot of people center their lives around. I don't center mine around it. I, I read it almost every day. But the more I read it, the more I actually see the truths of God's framework, to be honest. And the more and more I understand combat, the more and more I understand God in my, in my day-to-day life. Um, in sparring yesterday, I started to notice I started to notice these, these, these truths about myself that reflected in not only the way I was, was battling, but then I sort of saw reflections in the way I was living my, my day-to-day life prayer. And I can't sit here and tell people that there have been times where I haven't gone wrong in combat. I can't sit here and tell people where I, my, my, my spirit has has it darkened when training because it has at times and I've had to recover and tell myself that when I first came to orthodoxy one of the first things that I asked was is is me being a fighter in alignment with the church with, with, with God they said well it depends on the internal not really the external because the context the, the contest is agreed upon and I said okay and they said actually we when I was a priest down in Los Angeles there was a, I think it was, I would think it was Sergei Kovalev, the boxer, you know, went to receive a blessing before a fight. Um, there's the actual intentions, the clinical intentions of winning. And that can involve knocking someone out. That can involve, you know, out sort of outpointing them. But if you actually have this sort of true malicious intent of evil, then you're actually not reflecting the truth of God, the way you fight, and it's actually something that you're sort of separating, you're stepping out on your path of God from. And I've noticed this time and time again when I'm training. There's the clinical, detached way that you need to win. And you have to find a certain way to win against an opponent. But I actually, and some, something, someone that I think really um, hit the nail on the head. I don't. I don't believe he's a Christian. I think he's actually a Muslim. I'm not entirely sure. It's Kamaru Usman. He says, "Before I get in the cage, I pray that both of our both of us um, get out healthy to our parents." I don't want anyone I fight to be, you know, permanently damaged ever. Like I really, really do not. Um, and I pray for their healing regularly. Um, and I know the exact objective, but there's actually, when I fight correctly, when I fight in in truth, there's no evil within me. And it's, 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 it's a very, very strange dynamic. But it's a dynamic that I know when I'm in alignment with God, when I'm not. I think there are a lot of people 
who have certain practices in their life that think they're completely separate. And that separation is actually a choice. It's not as helpless as people think. And it's important to identify that. Right. Yeah, and I, and I think um, one, one thing that you kind of, you, you, you hit it on, kind of, again, hit the nail on the head there when you said, you know, it is fighting particularly, let's say, out of alignment with, uh, you know, with Christianity. And the, the interesting thing is that what, one thing that you'll kind of find um, is that, let's, let's take that exact example, you know, you, you've been hit you've been hit a lot of times right so so in a situation where you're where you're not in a fight um and let's you know you're you're not you know intentionally you know intentionally sparring with someone um and you know what christ says for example is if someone if someone uh hits you you turn the other cheek who's more apt to turn the other cheek than a fighter you know what I mean? Because you've been hit so many times. I'm not saying that, you know, you're just <laughs> except a beat down, you know, like, but the point is, is that the point is, is that there, there are these types of strength and there are these things again, that, that teach us, um, that teach us about, you know, how we, how we live. They, they, they prepare us, they give us strength. Right. And what you, even in fighting, you know, again, like you said, that the intent matters. If, if someone's trying to go and, knock someone out or hurt someone or um you know that's that that matters um and, and it's kind of is is this way in which we can you know we can understand it in in all aspects of our lives um and and christ is such that like you said he, he's maybe calling you away from your current profession it, there is a sense in which you know we can ask okay are these things real you know um and it's it's it sounds cliche to say it because we've heard it so many times, but Christ does lead us. We, we are led to do certain things and to not do other things by, you know, by the work of the, the Spirit in us. Um, and that kind of is, is even a reflection in your own life, right? Like you said, you know, I don't, I don't feel that fighting particularly is, you know, at odds because um, you're, you know, again, you're not going out in bars and trying to fight people, right? <laughs> the intent matters, uh, and the ultimate end matters. Um, and, and, you know, Paul even, St. Paul even says that, you know, physical exercise is, is beneficial, right? He gives that kind of physical exercise is beneficial and spiritual exercise even more so. Um, there's a connect there. You know, there's a relationship there. Um, so, yeah, I... Uh, I think you kind of nailed it on the head too, with saying maybe maybe we can end on this because I know we're both probably out of time here. Um, but I, you know, one thing that just kind of uh, is is important to remember, and you said it, you know, when you started bartending, you were in service to others. Um, one thing is Christ says, you know, the Son of Man came to the earth uh, not to be served, but to serve, and there's a sense in which. The, the one of the greatest things we can do is serve others, and it's a humbling experience, right? <laughs> to 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 do something for others, but it kind of just speaks to there's a subversion 
that, that Christ always brings, if you read the Gospels honestly, he subverts every expectation. Where you expect him to be, you know, gentle to the uh, leaders of the, like the Pharisees, he is extremely severe and sharp-tongued uh, and clever. You know, when you expect him to be um, critical of someone who is poor and, and maybe um, living a life of sin, he's gracious and he's compassionate. He, he subverts everything. And I think that we have that opportunity to kind of follow in that path of like, for example, you're a fighter um, and a bartender, but you've quite frankly, you've subverted the, uh, the, uh, you know, the, the motives by which those are usually done. And that is, I think that again, is the kind of the, a testimony, a living testimony of what it means to follow Christ. Right, like you take these things, and you make it uh, sacred. You make it intentional, and you you try to make it holy as much as possible. Um, that that is that is, you know, the, the biggest reflection on what it means to kind of follow this path um, of Christ. Absolutely, and, and and God does lead you, and. I think a lot of times people get wrapped up as like, well, I used to feel God here. It's like, well, God's moving along elsewhere now. And that's, sometimes it's really, really difficult to accept. The reason why I think some people on my page, they constantly, they've been seeing me share a song by Mazzy Starr called Into Dust. And it's been echoing in my mind um, as I'm getting ready to leave California. Um, I'm going to be moving to Texas February 1st. Um, Alameda County is asking us to check vaccines now, and I'm not doing it. I'm absolutely not doing it. I'm not, not going to get into the politics of that. Um, it's plain and simple. Um, I will not be an accessory to tyranny. Um, and it's, it's, it's time for me to go, and I mentioned before sort of my, my separation from my faith, my sort of prodigal son bit. The, the lies were so real. I can't even begin to tell you how real they were. Going back down that on the wrong path, th that deception was unbelievable. And these were things that I wrongfully held sacred. And they all turned to dust. California was once the place I was supposed to be, and now that's coming to an end. For me to stay any longer, I would just be going into dust. For me to continue bartending, I would just be going into dust. I'm not dictating this. God is dictating this. God is moving me along elsewhere. And that's where that continuous meaning comes from. Some of you who may take the faith, you might find yourself at the beginning in a path that it's going to be confusing. Well, how do I reflect God? And, and God will will lead you on that path. Whatever circumstance you're in. Whatever circumstance you're in. And following that is going to be far more deeper than anything else. Yeah, that's exactly right. That's exactly right. Um, and I think, you know, 
one of the things that that you and I um, we started with this and you know kind of ending with this too is it, it is difficult to kind of describe you know we're 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 talking about things that are um, I mean quite frankly indescri- indescribable right they kind of fit outside um, of of how you put it into words and why and if, even if if we look like if I look back on my life and ask you know why this or why that it, sometimes it's even hard to to determine um, but but what I will say is kind of having that um, having that path in front of you having that way set before us I mean that's what they uh, first century Christians called Christianity the way having having the way set before us um, it, it is actionable, right? It is something you can do and work toward. Um, and, you know, again, the, we, we would say that that would be the, the life and fabric of, uh, of the church. Absolutely. Absolutely. Daniel, thank you so much for being here. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Again, um, it's been a pleasure. I've really enjoyed this this discussion. Likewise, likewise. Where can people find you? Uh, so right now I'm just writing on uh, Instagram, prismatic.orthodox. Um, lately I've been doing some uh, different images and, and uh, um you know, with with some text on the the screen of an icon, um, but mainly, uh, I've just noticed that the, the images actually um, help the post move a little more. Um, I do enjoy doing it, but I, I'm really more I enjoy the writing more so. Um, one thing I will say too is I'm not nearly as prolific as a lot of others on um, on Instagram. So um, either a note, either a, adding a notification or um, saving the posts will keep me in your feed. <laughs> Otherwise, I'll just kind of sink below new follows because lately I've been, um, posts have been kind of few and far between. Um, so I won't, I won't bombard you, but at the same time, that's probably the best way to keep up on my, um, on my stuff. Yeah. Uh, Prismatic Orthodox uh, on Instagram. For those of you who are curious about Orthodoxy, I would highly recommend following Prismatic Orthodox on Instagram. That's very well cultivated aesthetics, by the way, and, and very eloquent writing. Um, and I would imagine that open invitation to um, I would imagine that open invitation uh, of any questions about orthodoxy um, that I have people you also share. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, and I'll kind of maybe end with just saying, you know, just like what your uh, priest told you at first and what my priest told me and what we both experienced was, you know, I'd be hap- I'm happy to um, answer any questions. Um, and I know that generally local priests are as well, um, but feel free if you just want to shoot me a, a DM or something. Um, one thing I will say, it, 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 it's there's nothing quite like just going to a service, <laughs> you know, just going to a, to a church. Um, it's it's hard to explain, but there's there's not nothing quite like it. So, um, yeah, that's. But it, but either way, my my inbox is open, and I will um, 
respond in a timely manner. I completely agree. God bless you, Daniel. Happy Theophany. Thank you so much. Blessed Theophany. And to all the listeners, as usual, good night and good storms. Thank you.